grasp more of the message. Well, I'm talking about salt and light, and it's it basically, it could be a two-hour sermon. I'm going to try to do it really short and just tell you a couple things about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as it relates to salt and light. If I stay behind the glass, I can take my mask off and you can hear me a little better. But if I get carried away and go out there, I'll try to remember to put it on. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 in New American Standard says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? By the way, you cannot re-salt. You cannot re-chlorify salt. Um, I won't get into the chemistry of it yet, but I do have a little bit of chemistry to throw in there because I love chemistry. Um, it, it was just a subject that I liked in school. And when I started looking at salt being sodium chloride, I thought there's there's something there that I think will be beneficial to us. But but Jesus said in Matthew 5 that it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and give you all the credit. All right. See, I just wanted to see. I, you know, I, I, what people say, Glory Amen. Father, Father, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. If, 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 you, if you do good works, if you do good works, guess what? God needs to get the credit. Amen? If you do good works, God has to get the credit. Oops. Not, not us. God needs to get the credit. Amen? So I love the fact that he says, you do the good works, but let God get the credit. That's what I, I, I love that. I love that. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. <clears throat> Let me just say this real quick. Jesus chose two analogies. And by the way, he uses these analogies over and over throughout the New Testament. He chose two analogies to describe what the Christian walk in life should be like. We should be like salt and light. Let me tell you why we should, we should be like salt first. We should be like salt because salt in those days, they did not have a refrigerator. They did not have an, uh, any sort of refrigeration at all for keeping things closed. No icebox, no chest. They didn't have a Yeti. They didn't have a... Um, um, an igloo. They didn't have anything to keep their food cold. So they used salt as a preservative. So the way salt preserves, here's a little bit of chemistry for you. The way salt preserves is that it preserves by, it takes the water or the moisture out of the substance that it's on. So when they would go fishing, they would salt the fish right away, even on the boat before they got to shore, because the salt would extract all the moisture out, and the moisture is where the bacteria and the microbes collect. That's where you get food poison and salmonella and all types of diseases, because the bacteria is attracted and it needs the moisture. All living organisms, even microorganisms, require water to live. So when you remove the water, you remove hydration, you remove H2O from a substance, it also virtually removes all of the opportunity for bacteria and contamination. So that's why salt made such a great preservative in the absence of refrigeration. Salt also has another medicinal 
aspect. By the way, it has more than just the two I'm going to tell you about, but I'm just going to tell you about these two because I think they relate so well and I can get through this sermon in less time than I plan to. And salt is it's a, it's a great preservative, as we know, or we don't use it as much as preservative because we have refrigerators, but it's also a seasoning. It provides flavor. And let me tell you something about salt. Here's what's interesting about the seasoning aspect of it. It's not that salt in and of itself tastes, you don't salt something so you can taste the salt. I know some of y'all do, that's why y'all got high blood pressure, pre hypertension and all that stuff. Salt is, we're not, excessive amount of salt provides toxicity, by the way. Too much salt is, is can be harmful. The purpose of the salt, usually, usually, the purpose of the salt is to bring the natural flavor out of the substance. The salt in and of itself is not to be the star of the show. The salt is to bring out the best that's already there. Oh, boy, y'all know where I'm going with this, right? See, as believers, our job is to be in the world, but not of the world. Our job is to bring salt and light to the world so that the world is preserved from God's judgment and the onslaught of sin. But it also is to bring seasoning, to bring spice, to bring the flavor that God has already put in every one of us. And no wonder he says, I would that all would come to salvation. No one would be lost. He wants all of us to be saved because we all have inherent value. We were, according to Psalms 139, we were all fearfully and wonderfully made. That's right. All of us. And there's something in us that God wants to bring out. And so he uses us, believers, we who have come to the light. He uses us as salt and light to expose, to enhance, to illuminate that good that's in everybody and bring them to the light of Jesus. Amen. So we're a preservative or a preventative from God's wrath, but we're also a season and a spice to bring out God's best. No wonder Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we are both an aroma of life to those that are living and we are aroma to death to those who are dying and i'm going to talk about that here in a second but i'll, I'll get to that in a second because that's part of my monday morning moment let me move on to light the reason we're the light of the world oh boy i i love like the chemistry of light is just off the chain but let me just say this if you read the book of job between chapters 38 between chapters 38 and, and 42, really, those four chapters, start really 41, because 42, Job started talking again. Job's mouth is dropped open, hanging open for the, those pre, 38, 39, 40, and 41. Job can't say nothing, because God is just smacking him all around. Where were you when I caused the ocean to go this far and no more? Where were you when I hung the stars and the constellations in the sky? Where were you when I created the hippopotamus? Where were you when I said to the light that you shall come in the day and the darkness? Where does, he asked him, where does the darkness go when the light comes? I often just scratch my head about, you know, I, I keep, when I come up to the church, well, there is one light, so it's not totally black. But if you go in the back room, 
in the back back of the church, it is pitch black. And the darkness is complete, absolute darkness is the absence of light. When you're back there, you put your hand right there and you cannot see it. That's the total absence of light. What God was saying to Job is, where does that darkness go when the light comes? Explain that to me, Mr. Job, who's sitting over there complaining, talking about what you don't know about, blaming God for this and giving God, blaming God for that. God didn't actually beat up on Job. He just schooled him a little bit. He said, hey, pull up your big boy pants and sit here and let me educate you. you you're talking about stuff that you don't know about. You are offering uh, wisdom without counsel. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't, don't, don't ascribe to God what's not his. And don't speak in areas that's above your pay grade. That's basically what the Lord was saying to Job. He said, I know you're down. I know you're depressed. But watch what you say because you don't really understand. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know that in a couple chapters that the, the rest of your life, it's going to be better than the beginning of your life. That your latter will be greater than your past. That, your, that, that what's about to happen, the, your former, is going to be greater than your latter. That you're about to see things and experience things and enjoy a family that you never thought you could have. And God just blew him out of the water. How do we know that God isn't preparing the same thing for us? That tomorrow is going to be better than today. That God's future for us is better than the past. That God's coming blessings are better than our current suffering. Mm. Don't try to put God in a box. Don't use today to dictate what's going to happen tomorrow. Because we don't know what God has in store. Something good is going to happen. God's working on something good. God is developing something good. God is thinking about something good. He has our future in our heart and our interests at heart. And he's always looking out for our best. God always gives us his best. Amen? So the signs of light is simply this. Light is just what something that makes vision possible. The purpose for light, as a matter of fact, modern physics has discovered that light goes on continuously, that there's no end to where light ends, that it goes on infinitely at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. And light is so fast that we don't have any devices that can travel at the speed of light. And that's why light is so important. Jesus said, I am the light. I love what Jesus said here in the Gospels. Before they even understood the chemistry of light, and they, before they understood the physics of matter and how light and matter and time and space work together and what that time-space continuum was, before men and science even knew how to ask those questions, Jesus was given the answers. <laughs> he said, I, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have capital L, uppercase L, the light, capital L, I-G-H-T, will have the light of life. And so he basically said to Job, when he was questioning Job, he said, so, so that you know, brother Job, you're a good dude and I love you. He said, but do you understand what direction light resides? Do you know what direction light goes? We know it goes at 186,000 miles per second, but we don't know where it begins and where it ends because light goes on infinitely. 
It says here in Job chapter 38, verse 19, in what direction does, does light reside and darkness? Where is its place? Job 38, 20 says that you may have taken, that you may take them to their borders and perceive the paths to their homes. In other words, do you know where light is going? Do you understand the cosmic the boundaries of light? Do you understand how light is continuous and it moves at a speed that's virtually immeasurable? It would have been immeasurable in Job's day. We have instrumentation now that can measure the speed of light, but they couldn't have been, it couldn't even have been measured in his days. God was talking about stuff that Job not only knew nothing about, he didn't even know how to ask the question, what is light? What is salt? Amen? So, salt and light, Jesus uses these great analogies to tell us that we're to have a preserving, impact, potent, accent part of life, and we're to be light. We're to illuminate the darkness. We're to show people what Jesus looked like. So when they see beautiful Tiff Lacey, they don't see just Tiff Lacey. They see Jesus in Tiff. And they don't give Tiff the praise, they give God the praise. Tiff is the conduit. She is the proxy by which people get to see Jesus. When they see us, they should be looking at a microscope, an icon, a microcosm of Jesus. They should be seeing Jesus, the Jesus in me. We sing the song, loves the Jesus in you. Amen. So the Jesus in us should be displayed to the world. Jesus said it like this in John 17 when he was praying in what's called a high priestly prayer. Here's what he said. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Stay with me. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, the Lord says, I don't want, I don't want, Chris, Christians aren't, hey, I don't hate on people that live in monasteries, people that, that live in, you know, enclosed, uh, like where monks might preside or whatever, cathedrals. I think we're supposed to be out in the world. If I'm in a monastery, if I'm somewhere held up in some sort of cathedral or citadel, what good am I, how am I providing light and salt? If I'm just staying home or I'm always cooped up in the church, I'm not advancing the cause of Christ, right? Jesus said, I don't want to take, Jesus said to Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil that's in the world. They need to be in the world, but just not of the world. Amen? Great prayer. Read John 17. It just knocks your socks off. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. They are not of the world, just like I'm not of the world. You sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus was just reiterating what God's instructions were. So our job, listen, as I close, listen, this is the, this is the punchline of the sermon. As salt and light, and Jesus just, Jesus just knocks these subjects out of the park in the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you guys have been reading the Sermon on the Mount? Have you been reading that? Have you been reading it? Let me tell you something. There are so many great things in the Sermon on the Mount. It's like a little Bible in and of itself. Imagine Jesus preaching a sermon. What wouldn't be good about it? What, what wouldn't be? What, what, where would you stop underlining? Where would you stop taking notes? I mean, God is talking, the God of the universe incarnate in flesh, dwelling among us, speaking 
to us in plain English or whatever your native tongue is. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was. Most of them didn't understand it, but it was God among them. So he said to them, he said, I want you to be salt and light. I want you to make a difference. But that means you can't be like the world. And here's what he says. I love this. He says, do not love the things. This is 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the things. Do not love the world or the things in the world. You all with me on that? Do not love the, the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, John 2.15 says, 1 John 2.15, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love the world and love God because they are competing factors. They're, bi they're, they're polar opposites. You, you can't love darkness and love light. They're incompatible. When light comes, darkness leaves. When darkness overcomes light, light goes away. The two are mutually exclusive. They cannot exist in the same space, right? You can't have darkness and light occupying the same space. One or the other will prevail. Jesus said you can't love the world and love the Father. He says for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, we know that from the King James Version, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, he says they are in the world, but they're not, they're, they're not from the Father, but they're from this world. And the world is passing away along with his desires. So by the way, here's what he's saying. You can't be saved and act like the world and try to be cool like the world and fit into the world and expect to be accepted by the world. The world should reject us. We don't have to become a holier than thou and act all sanctimonious and pious. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say walk up with your nose in the air and look down on, on people in the world like they're sinners and Philistines. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you don't have to look down on people and be all arrogant and haughty. What he's saying is make sure that when you're in the world, that you're not looking down on people, but that you're not also not trying to imitate them and be like them. Some people think that you, to, to, to be a better Christian, that you need to blend in. I need to look like the world. I need to be cool like them. I need to dress like them. I need to use their lingo and their slang and their profanity. And I need to party with them. I need to gamble with them. I need to hang out with them. I need to involve myself in all kind of licentious behavior like them. That's not how you win them. You, you're, you're compromised. You forfeit your testimony. Your ability to witness has been severely undermined. You have nothing to say to them because when they see you, they think you're one of them. I told you Peter had to start cussing before they thought he wasn't a disciple. <laughs> the little girl said, but you look like him. You look like one of the girls. You look like Jesus. You even sound like you even have his little, his little lingo, his little mannerisms. What if that should have been like, Peter should have been coming. Now, wait, now I'll put it in perspective in a minute. Peter should have been saying, yeah, I'm one of him. I wear the badge proudly. He should have been glad to have been numbered with Jesus. Amen. But Peter knew that, hey, I get identified with him. There might be four crosses on Golgotha instead of three. I might be the fourth one. So I ain't trying. Not right. <laughs> I love Jesus at all. I mean, Jesus is my boy. We're dudes. But right now, I'm trying to stay alive. <laughs> so, no, I don't know him. 
I can make things right later, but right now, no. I don't know no Jesus. Who y'all talking about? Here, let me drop a few F-bombs and let you know I ain't part of this movement. And he started swearing. I don't know if he used F-bombs, but he started swearing, right? Which lets me know that language is so important because his way of differentiating was the same way he was considered associating. They said, you sound like him, your speech is like him, you, you, you look like him, you act like him. The things that should have been his you know, badges of honor, he used to differentiate that he's not with Jesus. Don't love the world, don't be like the world. In conclusion, I, I leave with you 2 Corinthians 2.14, where it says, but thanks be to God who is in Christ, who in Christ always leads us into triumph, triumphal procession. And through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. I, I, I alluded to this earlier, and I said to one, verse 16, it's the fragrance from death to death. To another, it's the fragrance from life to life. So I, I thought about a, a Monday morning moment. So I, I decided I'll use this as a Monday morning moment. I think I've used something like this before in terms of a title of a sermon. And that is, how do you smell? What do you smell like? Are you an aroma of life or death? Are you an aroma or do you stink? I know that sounds very offensive. Uh, do, do well do we stink like death in other words Jesus was saying that God is saying through his word here Paul's writing to the church of Corinthians he said either you're an aroma to life where people are smelling you quote unquote that's that's a euphemism for they're looking at your life and you are beautiful you're holy you're kind you're sweet you're generous you're Christ-like or they look at you and you stink just like they do. And they don't see a difference, right? Really, think about it. Let's just call a spade a spade. Here's where this, uh, here's where this imagery came from. In Rome at the time, when a Roman commander would go to war, if he defeated a foe of 5,000 or more, there were 5,000 or more casualties in one day, and the Romans were victorious, and they suffered very few losses, when that general came back, they held what was called a triumph. I put it in my notes because I thought it was just really amazing how that worked. What they would do is they would have a what we would call today a ticker tape parade. It would be the equivalent of a ticker tape parade where they would march the chariots and the soldiers and the commanders would be riding on white horses. They'd do a big parade route around town. And this procession would lead to a place called Circus Maximus. It was like a big arena where they would they would uh, have all of the victorious guard, guard, uh, generals and soldiers come for this celebration. And what they would do is they would have these, listen to this, they would have these priests that would follow in the procession and they would be lighting these incense. So they would have this great aroma, all this, this, this smoke, this aroma, this fragrance would just be just hovering over the entire arena, this parade route, so you could smell it in the air. You with me? So for some people, it was a smell 
of victory. We're triumphant. The Romans just conquered another, you know, city, another country. We added to our empire. and We're celebrating this amazing triumph. But they would also march some of the prisoners of war, some of the captives. They would bring back some of them to be thrown into the Colosseum to fight wild animals as entertainment for the triumphal victors and for the people and the citizens of Rome. So everybody is smelling this wonderful incense. To some people, the incense spelled victory and triumph. To other people, the slaves, the captives, the, the prisoners of war smelled it too. And for them, it was a smell of death because they knew imminent doom awaited them. Jesus said, what, what is the smell? What type of aroma are we giving off? Are we giving off an aroma of life where when people smell us, when they see us, when they experience us, when they're seasoned by us, when they're illuminated by us, we become a source of life? Or is our smell a source of death? In other words, we're basically providing a source of, of, of helping people. But by the same token, people that don't listen and aren't responsive to the message then our, our aroma will be to them eventually death because they will be lost without Christ. Amen? I think this is such a poignant picture because in another way you can look at it as is our life bringing about life to people where they are seeing Christ and want to be like him because they see the Christ in us? Or is our life so smelly, so bad, is it, are we living so shabbily that people don't see anything in us and we're just another source of death like they are? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Help us to be like you. Help us to be imitators of Christ. Help us to smell good. Do we smell? Yes, we smell like the aroma of life. We smell like a fragrance, a sweet-smelling savor coming up into your nostrils and hopefully, Lord, into the nostrils of a dark and dying world. Help us to be a light. Help us to be salt. Help us to be seasoning that brings about a preservation element in the world today. Give us that ability to be strong and be different, be a peculiar people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood set aside and sanctified for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So.